This week on Life and Faith. People want to set themselves apart from the evil that has existed in the world and exists now. They act as if it were all some terrible error made by other people that they themselves are not vulnerable to making. Who are we and where do we fit in this vast universe? Every single one of us is going to have to deal with hardship in this life. It's a delicate balance one has to strike here. There has never been a perfect form of Christianity according to Jesus' vision. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. And just to say straight up, if you've got kids within earshot, you might want to listen to this another time. Later in the episode, there's some content that's not suitable for little kids, so perhaps keep that in mind. Yeah, and as we start, it's probably not a bad idea to run through the various titles we came up (laughs) with for this episode, because we get that guilt is a hard sell. And if we do this, it's going to orient you, our listeners, to our thinking for this week, because... I think we can recognise it is so counterintuitive to be in praise of guilt. So here's one option that we came up with. Guilt is good for you. Yeah, that was a kind of a guess from you, Justine, a slight reference to Greg Sheridan's book, God is Good for You. Mm -hmm. Yep, something like that. How about this one? Guilt is the new black. (laughs) Yeah, Max Jagannathan came up with that one. Although, you know, feeling guilty isn't quite a trend I can see taking off anytime soon. Fair enough. What about guilt can be good news? This is my one. Mm, Yeah, and no one believes you, Justin. Well, you know, it's worth a shot anyway. (laughs) Okay, so this is your one, Simon, in praise of guilt. And it's the one we're going with for the episode's title. But tell us straight, why do you want to sing guilt's praises? Do you want us to feel bad about ourselves? (laughs) The opposite, actually, paradoxically. Now, it strikes me there was a time when people did report they felt guilty often. They were guilty about their lives and their impact on other people and sometimes guilty about things they hadn't even done. But we've gone through an era where we've decided that guilt is a relentlessly negative emotion and we should get rid of it. And consequently, people tend to not feel guilty these days, but they do seem to feel anxious. So anxiety is the spirit of our time. So this is part of the reason why you want to make guilt um, great again. <laughs> so, um, you feel as though guilt can be weirdly liberating. Is that right? And, and not just even guilt, but it's associated terms like the S word, sin. Well, I do, but not in a straightforward sense. So it takes some unpacking. I'll, I'll give you that. And that's what we want to do today, but with some help from some people who've thought deeply about this. Yeah. And we're going to hear from the experts more in the second half of the show. But first up, we kind of want to approach the issue sort of sideways because we do get it takes some convincing for the modern ear to entertain a word like Sin, Mm. for example. So I remember an article I read in The Guardian fairly recently, and it identified what the author, Connell Hanna, called the Teal Paradox. So, uh, you know, since the last federal election in Australia, we've become acquainted with the Teal candidates. They're kind of like liberals, I guess, but they want action on climate change. Is that right? <laughs> well, they're, yeah, yeah, they're independents. They're independents. They do seem to have a pretty common um, and they've set taken, of things that they're standing for. Yes, and they have taken some electorates away from the liberals. Sure have. They're very popular. Yes. 
But this article in The Guardian was talking about how teal voters tend to come from electorates with very big carbon footprints. Mm -hmm. So he was pointing out this mismatch between the teal voters' stated ideals, they want action on climate, and yet the reality, right? The fact that they have high consumption lifestyles that emit a lot of carbon. So he says that there's a link between wealth and higher emissions, okay? That that middle-class consumers like him, and let's be honest, like me, and this is a quote directly from him, have shown marginal interest in curbing our lifestyles to address a warming planet. And when I read this, my head exploded because it was like, oh my, I've never read anything like this before. What's going on? It's a brave article. I mean, no one wants to admit that they're part of the problem, especially the problem that they're pointing out to everyone else. Yes, that's right. And in the course of the article, he makes sure that he mentions that he doesn't think it's a question of morality, but opportunity. So he says, rich people don't emit more carbon because they're morally inferior. They do it because they can. But I read that and I was like, is it just me? Or it kind of does sound like a question of morality. It sounds like we have difficulty sacrificing our comforts and what we want for a greater good. It seems like that in the end, what we're kind of committed to I want action on climate, yes, but my deeper commitment is kind of like to me and what I want. And to my comfort, perhaps. Absolutely. Mm. So the article ends, how much longer can we pretend our lives needn't change to reflect our grim climate reality? Yes, we must keep demanding better of our politicians on climate action, but it might also be time to look in the mirror and determine what part we should play in the solution. So I don't know about you, but... It sounds like this guy is like saying we need a theology of sin. (laughs) I mean, he wouldn't say that, but it does seem that we need some kind of framework to deal with the gap between who we think we should be and who we actually are. And he's like, look in the mirror. So it's like, I read that as saying, face yourself, be honest with yourself. You know, I should be honest with myself. What's on me here? What's my responsibility? And it's almost like step into the confessional. Yeah. Step into the confessional, Justine. That's exactly right. It feels like this is kind of an unexplored area, and we're trying to ignore an elephant in the room here. But at the same time, maybe in different areas, there's some interest actually in starting to think about this conversation. Yeah, well, I want to ask you about this because you went to see the Sydney Theatre Company's production of Dorian Gray, the picture of Dorian Gray, and it's been fated and celebrated. I saw it's had five stars from all the mastheads. Yeah, it sure did. And, and honestly, this production of it, of this story, it's an you know, older story, was absolutely astonishing. I haven't seen anything like it. It's a mix of film and theatre combining uh, those two things, really, in the most technically precise manner. It's absolutely mesmerising and hard to describe until you've seen it. Okay, so before we get into the, the way that it all played out on stage, just catch us up. What's the original story by Oscar Wilde? Yeah, so the, the main character is Dorian Gray. He is a strikingly handsome young man who is very interested in just pursuing beauty and pleasure no matter the cost. And he makes this wish early in the story. It's like a Faustian bargain, really, that... Deal with the devil. Yeah, yep. that his portrait, there's this beautiful portrait of him, that the portrait would be the thing that would age instead of him. And so he gets this wish granted to him. And so he remains, all, all through the story, this young, beautiful young man, losing himself in the pursuit of every pleasure. And effectively, at the same time, he sort of sells his soul And while he continues to look really good on the outside, his portrait 
is really showing the signs of the ravages of the years and of all his dark living. The golden light of a perfect summer's day streamed into the room and danced about the figure as if in worship. As they entered, he spun to face them. That's Erin Jean Norval playing Dorian Gray in the STC production adapted by Kip Williams. And I was going to ask you, Simon, what insight does that clip give us into the character or the production? Mm. Well, it's a one-person show, which when my wife told me we were going to a one-person show, didn't fill me with enthusiasm, <laughs> I must admit, in my ignorance. But Erin Jean Norval plays 26 characters and Gosh, carries wow. it off. Unbelievably. Now, most of them are her adapting as she speaks in this kind of rapid fire dialogue, but she plays this multitude of characters and they appear on screens at the same time. She's interacting with them in real time. There's this very memorable dinner party scene, which is sort of unforgettable where she's all the people on the table. That sounds schizophrenic, my gosh. (laughs) Um, I saw a video on Facebook where Kip Williams had this to say about the production. The picture of Dorian Gray is a mashup of theatre and cinema. We take the best of these two art forms and combine them together. This is sort of like live performance remixed for the digital age. And it sounds like all you see is her, right? Erin Jean Norval. And she's, you see her in the flesh before you, but also her face or her likeness is projected onto the screen. So I'm imagining it sounds like it's very disorienting, right? There's mm-hmm. so many masks this Dorian Gray wears. Yes, and very deliberately that. Right? The themes, there's lots of themes in this. I'd be doing it a disservice to pretend it's only the things that you know, I want to talk to you about. But there's themes like self-obsession. Um, I think we could relate to that. And the way that social media always has us playing up to the crowd. It's quite a kind of modern take, therefore, on our digital lives these days. And it's representing this sort of giving ourselves over to our devices, Mm -hmm. giving ourselves over to appearance uh, as opposed to reality, and the corrosive effect on our soul in doing that. Yeah, I remember you raving about this after you'd seen it. (laughs) And it sounds like it's taking seriously, I guess, in a rot, I suppose. And even the idea of a soul, is that right? It totally engages a modern audience with the themes that Wilde's exploring here, human nature, the darkness of the human heart. It's very much present in this. This notion of giving yourself over to self-obsession and pleasure and entertainment at all costs with no balance or rhythm of work and rest and play and the effect of our indulgences on others. It's one thing to be a, a person giving yourself off to these things, but it's showing that, no, this is impacting everyone around it you as well. Yeah. It just does radiate. And it's exploring questions like, do we have a soul? What about personal responsibility? And the implications and the consequences of my actions, which I have to say is not a very contemporary conversation these days. So, Simon, after two hours of being bombarded with this character and the disintegration of their soul, I guess, what was it like? Was it a cathartic experience? <laughs> It was a bit like being bombarded. It gets really dark, uh, but it's really funny. It's witty in parts, hilarious, but also always with a stab. And sometimes you really felt you were seeing stark choices between good and evil. And it strikes me that Dorian Gray, the story, comes from a world that was more ready, actually, to deal in those terms. It was a world where everyone has agency and responsibility, 
And the story delves into the concept of responsibility in a way that strikes me as quite countercultural today. And yet, here we were in a packed theatre, which I understand it was every night, and people were totally captured by this story. It might be that people are still interested in talking about responsibility, but we want to limit the areas that we want to be responsible for. (laughs) So people are happy to talk about the morality of their food choices and where their food comes from, um, how many carbon miles, etc. Did the hens have a good, were they free range or not? Um, And maybe even our fashion choices, we care about that sort of stuff, but we don't want to talk about the morality of my choices or your choices, right? We're far more uncomfortable with that. Now, earlier, Justin, you talked about a framework to grapple with this gap between who we think we should be and who we actually are. And I know you and I have been, as we prepared for this, been wondering whether sin, the concept of sin, might be a way of naming that gap. Yes, but let's be honest, we're super awkward right now, right? Because no one wants to say the S word. I'm a Christian and I wince every time I hear it. And no one wants to guilt trip people, right? This is understandable why no one wants to go there. Yeah, and it's because it has a history, of course. Christian theology has at times really loaded up people with unhelpful, unnecessary guilt. A burden, I'd say, actually. And it's resulted in, in some cases, a really joyless restrictive existence for people who who haven't, I would argue, haven't been exposed to the whole story. So there's baggage attached to the word sin. Um, You and I both love the British writer Francis Spufford, who we'll hear from later today. And when he wrote his book on Christianity, he was trying to illuminate this concept of sin for people, but he recognized that the word itself might be problematic but not the concept. And so he would say, when I'm going to write about sin, someone will immediately think of, I don't know, something really trivial like too much chocolate or lingerie or something, and that will be nowhere near what he's talking about. And so he uses this combination of words in the book in a compressed form. It's unforgettable, the (laughs) HPTFTU, the human propensity to, and I'm going to be more polite than he was, muck things up. The HPTFTU, everyone, when they read that, immediately knows what he means. They know it among their work colleagues. They know it among their friends. They know it among their family. And if they're being honest, they know it in their own hearts, this human propensity to even when we're trying to mess, make a mess of things. You're describing my life, I think. Um, I think that if you're in close relationship with anyone, then they actually get the privilege of front row seats to your own brokenness. And I say you're in the second person, but I'm talking about mine. Um, I think about being a parent and I feel like that, that acquaints you with intimate knowledge of yes. how easy it is to mess things up, including your child, you know, who I love so much. I tell my boys, it's okay to get angry. It's not okay to let your anger hurt someone else, which is excellent parenting advice. But then I go and break that (laughs) in my actions. They get angry. They punch each other. I get angry. I start to speak out of turn. If I could slow this parental train that is steadily derailing in front of me, then I could calm myself and hope to calm them. And I could see that my need to be in control and have the day go according to my plans winds up with me attempting to control them. And, you know, guess what? They're not going to be controlled. But that means I double down even further Of course, I know all of this in the sorry aftermath. I never know it at the time. At the time, it's like, you know, my foot is just on that accelerator. We are going off the tracks, but I can't stop myself. And this is just in the domain of intimate relationships, right? I honestly think you can apply this to every other area of life and it still sticks. There's this constant gap between what we aspire to 
and, and then how go. we yeah. actually act. Now, just so you don't feel alone in any of that, parenting does absolutely kind of accentuate every one of these situations. Oh, I no longer feel bad about it. I used no. to feel like I was incredibly lovely and kind, and now I know I'm not. <laughs> well, <laughs> and that well, I know I know that's well, true of everyone else as well. Or at least well. you have your moments, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's is right. That, is that a way of saying yeah, it? Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah, that, that's helpful. We all get how we should operate, but then we also sort of actively sabotage our best laid plans and we hurt people in the process. So we have this propensity, as Spufford calls it, that even when we try, we fail. And, you know, to be honest, we often don't try. Justin, we're going to take a break now, but stay tuned, everyone. There's light at the end of this dark tunnel that Justin and I have got ourselves into. We'll be back in a moment. This is Life and Faith, and we are talking about sin and guilt and asking whether these concepts are important and, in fact, liberating ideas. Now, the story so far, there's a mismatch between our ideals and our reality. We might vote teal but not limit our high-carbon lifestyles. And we don't want to traumatize our kids, but parenting feels like that hourly experience of screwing things up. Yes, and meanwhile, no one likes the S word because people are sick of holier-than-thou types making judgments on other people, and not least because the apparently self-righteous are just as messed up as anyone else. So it's a bit of a disaster right now, (laughs) isn't it? But we're going to get some help here, Justine. First up, here's a clip from Elizabeth Oldfield's excellent podcast, The Sacred, uh, that comes out of Theos Think Tank in the UK, and they're friends of ours. And it comes from her interview with the New York Times columnist David Brooks, who in recent years has become a Christian, even if a quite reluctant one, honestly. But just a bit of context and the reason for the content advisory earlier. When they spoke, David mentioned that he'd been writing a column about a crime out of Philadelphia. There was a man on a train who sexually assaulted a female passenger. And if that wasn't terrible enough, no one on the train intervened. And apparently people filmed it happening, but still didn't step in. So that's the background of the conversation we're about to hear. It's probably worth knowing that. But right now, Elizabeth is asking about another word with lots of baggage attached to it, morality. I was really struck actually reading your last two books, How Often You... You're very comfortable with the word morality. And my backstory with this is that I worked for a while on a BBC program called The Moral Maze, which is a um, ethical discussion program. And the M word was was always tripping us up because we'd ring people and say, we want you to come on and make this oral, moral argument, which is a position that we know you hold because you've said it somewhere. And they said, well, I wouldn't call it a moral argument. And we'd say why not? And they said, well, it's an evidence-based argument or it's a philosophical argument. And I'd say, well, why don't, why don't you like the word mor- moral and morality? They say, well, it sounds, it sounds judgmental. It sounds like we are judging people. Talk to me about that. How do you avoid sounding preachy? And why do you think we are so sensitized to the possibility that someone talking about their vision of the good is inherently a judgment on us? Yeah, well, I don't totally walk away from the judgmental like the rapist on the train. I'm judging him. <laughs> uh, the, the passengers, I'm judging them. Uh, am I confident that I would do otherwise if I were a passenger? Can't be totally confident on that. We all think we would be the one to leap in. 
but um, in real life circumstances, people who say they will leap in do not leap in. And so I, I you know, the people are asked, what's the essential um, virtue? Augustine was asked this, and he said, well, the essential virtue is humility, humility, humility. And I think if you um, try to aspire to a sense of humility, you can talk about judgment in a way that's not preachy and insufferable. And you will often go over the line. But the alternative to talking about morality is to have no one talking about morality. And we are moral creatures and we all want to be better people. And you raise successive generations who don't have a moral vocabulary, who don't talk about grace and sin and redemption, uh, and who don't have a formula or even a theory of moral formation. And so somebody has to talk about it, even though the reputational risks are A, that you won't live up to your standards, which is inevitable, or B, you'll seem preachy and self-righteous, or D, people will think you're talking about sex. <laughs> uh, and, and so I talk about it freely, uh, running the risk of being insufferable to some people. Yeah. I was trying to explain to someone the other day why I like the concept of sin in public. And the way I summed up why I'd love us to be able to talk about sin again is that in excising it from our culture, we've let, ended up with this bizarre, seemingly contradictory mishmash of no one is responsible for anything because we're just stimulus and response mechanisms determined by our genes or our background or whatever it is. But then everyone is responsible for everything because there is no such thing as forgiveness and redemption or change. And so I, I can't even describe it, but it's the two things at the same time, hugely judgmental and hugely permissive, seems to me to be psychologically much worse than, yes, I am sinful and I have somewhere to go with that. I have the possibility of change. I have help. You know, there's, there, there is forgiveness is on the table rather than... Um, a total thing. Do you recognize that? And what might help us move beyond it? Yeah, I, I would say if, if people are raised as we all were, at least I was, it, with the social science mentality that schooled in the phrases of, of social psychology, uh, of, of um, sociology, of economics, in which, as you say, the human person, the agent is not there because it's all correlation. And what correlates to what and what determines what and it's good. And these fields are great at generalizing about populations. They're not particularly great at looking at the individual human person. And so you school people in this, and then suddenly people have to make judgments about the individual moral person. They swing radically over, and suddenly it's the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, and so there's no like a middle ground where you see people as modeled selves, M O T T L E D. Uh, and and frankly, there are no formula. I mean. The, Religions have spent, and other moral systems have spent a lot of time thinking about forgiveness. Like, how do you do it? You don't just say, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I forgive you. That's yeah, just too simple and too easy. So there are rituals of confessing the sin, correcting the sins, reparation for the sin, acknowledging the sin, acknowledging the sin exists, but it will not be a barrier in our relationship to one another. And so these formula are not only, I think, baked into the, the fabric of the universe, they're just super useful. That's from Elizabeth Oldfield's interview with David Brooks. We'll put a link to the full chat on the website. It's well worth a listen. Now, you just heard David Brooks say that religions have a way of grappling with the fact that humans are, as Brooks called them, mottled selves. I love that phrase. Confession, 
reparation, restitution, repair. These formulas are super useful, but maybe not taken up. But here's theologian Alistair McGrath talking about why recovering the concept of sin could be a healthy thing for us. Well, the reason it needs to be rediscovered is it's so obviously right. There is something wrong with us. Why is this world such a mess? It's a real challenge for secular humanists who, in effect, are saying we are rational, we are wonderful, and look at the sort of things we do. Well, that, that's bad, people. But the answer is no, those are human beings doing those things. And we have to have a defensible understanding of human nature, which allows us to understand why we aspire to greatness, but very often simply mess things up. If we recover this idea of the sinfulness of humanity, it in effect is saying to us, look, it means we recognize we are damaged, we're broken, we're wounded, we need help. And actually, that makes us much more tolerant. It makes us much more understanding of other people's failure. And if we know we're likely to mess up, we're going to be extra careful about things. If we realize that we are almost flawed to the extent that we do this by nature, then we can begin to address the problem. Recovering the idea of sin is not about going back to some sort of superstitious past. It's simply about recognizing the truth about who we are and making adaptations to the way we think, the way we behave, which are much more realistic than this delusion of humanity as a perfectible being. That was Alistair McGrath saying that recovering the idea of sin is about recognizing the truth about who we are. I think this is more realistic than the way sometimes people talk these days about guilt being a negative emotion that we need to be without. As an anti-self-help writer once said, Justine, sometimes we feel guilty because we are guilty. Yes, that is very true. Although it's almost like we need a warning here, right? If you happen to be someone who's religious, you actually need to tread super carefully here because of that history. I'm very sympathetic to people who feel and have experienced either the church or Christian people judging them and full disclosure, I've been totally guilty of doing that myself. It's horrific. I think I've realized that in certain relationships that when you do that, you strand people in a terrible feeling, right? This feeling that you messed up, nothing good can come of this. Uh, And I think it's, well, that's wrong for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, Not least of which is that it's not the full story, right? I think I remember someone saying, Christianity is bad news before it's good news. So, We shouldn't just get stuck on the bad news and not remember that there is a turn. Absolutely. You need the full story. You need the full story. There's a recognition, yes, of our brokenness and our failure. But sometimes people do miss the second part, which is the lavish grace that's on offer. That is startling and contains really the lasting implications of the whole story. Yes, and this is why I love what Francis Bufford has to say in this clip. You can really feel the human darkness. It's real, but there's more. Christianity tells the person whose life is in ruins, first of all, that that it's not that surprising, that it does not mean that you are a uniquely wicked person who has screwed up in a way that no one has ever done before in the history of the world, which is often how people who are accusing themselves feel because our culture is not always very good sometimes at preparing people for the rubbish their own motives may may lead them towards. Um, But Christianity says, you're not that unusual. We've been dealing with this stuff for a long time. Um, And you're also not alone. 
um, that there is a community of other fallible people who at one point or another have hit the rocks and have discovered it's survivable. In the first place, in a very ordinary way, it's survivable because actually your own integrity as a human being does not depend on being perfect. Um, that you find you're still there after you've after you've hit the rocks, after you're in ruins. Um, but it also says that there is a chance for mending. There is there is a chance for your life, which at this point seems to be capable of no order whatsoever, can be put back into order. And even though you won't believe this now, but you may later, order which makes you think that the smash you put yourself through was even kind of lucky, not because it was right to hurt yourself and other people, but simply because it might put you in a place afterwards where, though you won't believe this now, you're stronger and kinder and less surprised by the range of human behavior. That was Francis Spufford, and if you want to check out his book on this topic, it's called Unapologetic, Why, Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. Or you could listen to our interview with him about that on Life and Faith. Now, the chance for mending that Spufford speaks about here, well, this is, Justine, where the Easter story comes in. Uh, The Easter story, of course, is about God's efforts to address the issue and with a totally surprising solution, where he takes on this kind of penalty, takes on all the pain of all the human propensity to mess things up, and he takes it upon himself. I mean, that's the switch here. Yes, it is our expectation entirely that the world is split into good guys and bad guys, and that one of the effects of that split means that the good guys can kind of stand in judgment on the bad guys and say, we did the right thing, you did not. But the Easter story is completely radical in that it puts everyone on an equal footing and it says everyone is liable to mess things up, everyone is accountable for their actions. So it's like everyone is like me. They're a bit of a mess and they're broken, but even that mess can be mended. Yeah, and it's about just the new beginnings and possibilities and new life. And just because I think I need to add here, because you've been confessing a whole lot of your failures. Yeah, you're going to confess You should be saying now. we, like including me in this, because <laughs> I very much am. I think it's also weirdly kind of like hopeful. Yeah. But I want to say a sober hope, because yes, it's about new beginnings, new possibilities, but it should also give everyone reason to pause, especially when they think that they're absolutely right and that there's no way that they aren't right. Hmm. So this is good for people like me who are like, no, 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 this is the way to see it. There's no there's no alternative. Yes, okay. Well, Justine, here is author Marilyn Robinson on the, now wait for it, the brilliant idea of original sin. Now, I interviewed her a few years ago now for our documentary, For the Love of God. Here she is. I think it's very important to deal with the fact that we are flawed and that we are all flawed. I think that the idea of original sin is one of the most brilliant that antiquity has yielded. People want to set themselves apart from the evil that has existed in the world and exists now, the sadness, all of it. But that makes them hard, I think, because they act as if it were all some terrible error made by other people that they themselves are not vulnerable to making. And... um, I think real humanism depends on taking the whole history of humankind 
which is really something, really a difficult thing. But at the same time, we have to look with pity and we have to look with recognition on all the generations that have come before us and understand that we are as blind as they are. Yeah, I love that from Marilyn Robinson. And at the very least, this should make us feel a little bit shy about thinking we have all the answers or writing someone else off because they are so clearly in the wrong or even the idea of cancelling someone who has fallen afoul of contemporary codes. Yes, when she says we're as blind as they are. Like, what a statement. You know, no one wants to be blind, gosh. But to realise that all of us have our blind spots, there's something really refreshing in that. And there's an equality there. Because I think when I hear her say that, it doesn't matter how clever, how rich, how powerful someone is or isn't. The idea that everyone is fatally flawed means that everyone has the same human problem. Yeah, but also the same solution that's made available. It's that solution that Easter celebrates. So let's give Francis Spufford the final word here. The good news in our fallenness, to put it in Christian theological terms, is that it's the chink through which the light gets in, that because we're bust in some fundamental way, through the crack in our natures comes something stronger, sweeter, braver, bolder, kinder, grander than we'd be able to manage ourselves. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Please do share this episode with someone and leave us a rating or review and check out previous episodes that you might have missed. You can also watch the clips from our documentary interviews by going to our website and searching documentary and interviews and either the topic or the person. Thanks today to Elizabeth Oldfield and our friends at Theos Think Tank in London for that clip from the Sacred Podcast. And thanks to our producer, the enigmatic Alan Douthwaite. We're going to be taking a break from Life and Faith for a few weeks, but we'll be back in early May for our second season for 2023. Happy Easter. Happy Easter.